Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'll make this quick so as to allow you as much time as possible with that wonderful Spirit in Action guest host, Peterson Toscano. I've done interviews with him as far back as 2007, and he has guest-hosted Citizens Climate Radio and Bible Bash episodes here since 2016. Peterson is a creative genius and a deep thinker, and his quirky, insightful vision lets him see where more timid minds fear to tread. Today, he's bringing us glimpses into diverse topics like LGBTQ issues, environmentalism, racism, and more from his Bubble and Squeak podcast. I'm so happy to have you back, Peterson. Over to you. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for listening to today's show. If you're a regular listener, you may have heard me sharing stories about climate action change figures. I host a show called Citizens Climate Radio. Today, though, I will be doing something different. Two years ago, I launched a new podcast called Bubble and Squeak. Like the British dish of the same name, in each episode of Bubble and Squeak, I mix in a bunch of different bits. My hope is that they all work together. Bubble and Squeak is my personal audio playground, where I experiment with sounds, storytelling, interviews, and radio dramas. At times, it's super silly, and sometimes a little too saucy for radio, (laughs) and often it's serious, even if it's just under the surface. Today, I will share with you excerpts from five different episodes. You will hear artist George Ferrandi from the episode entitled Tender Gasp. She tells us about intimate work that emerged in spite of social distancing. Australian museum curator Craig Middleton is co-author of the book Queering the Museum. He appeared in the episode Queer Object. Alongside Craig, you will hear a monologue performed by me as Yuri in a museum from the future. From the episode entitled Black Lives, I include an audio piece about a world without fossil fuels. What does it sound like, smell like, and feel like in such a world? Dr. Natasha DeJohnette, a public health expert, shares her own vision of the world she is fighting for, one with environmental justice for all. We also hear from the host of the widely popular Brown Sugar Diaries, and you will hear a very special Black Lives Matter service from Union Theological Seminary. And in the show, I also feature Peggy Campolo from my episode, Angel Trickster. Peggy told me about her amazing transformation from a mousy pastor's wife to one of the most outspoken evangelicals in America speaking up for LGBTQ rights. But first, I share with you an interview I conducted with Kristen Peterson Kazubowski, a queer writer from Wisconsin. In the episode, Without Fur, she told me about her first feature-length film. I also share music and audio clips from the film. In her first feature-length film, Kristen Peterson Kazubowski experienced her recent past. Ringo Livio explores the discomfort she feels 
when she is so often thrust into hypermasculine places. The film tells the story of two women in a relationship. Marissa is an outgoing singer-songwriter struggling to assert new sides of herself. She brings her introverted, insect-loving girlfriend Ada to rural Wisconsin to meet the family. The visible tension in the film is between Marissa's loud, childish adult brothers and this quiet, sensitive Ada. Ada tries hard to fit in. She mostly doesn't. The other quieter tension is within Marissa herself. She becomes the central character as the others satellite around her. I recently chatted with Kazubowski. She talks about the film, the insects in it that still creep her out, and the need to push queer cinema to embrace everyday human experiences. I'm Kristen Peterson Kazubowski. I would say I'm first a screenwriter, then a director, then a producer. But I, I spend most of my days writing poetry. I've been working on Ringolivio as a concept, as a, a collection of poems, kind of. Impressions of my young 18, 19, 20-year-old life. I, I got a lot of help from really talented screenwriters who have written longer pieces, narratives, to help me kind of form, well, how am I telling the story of one person or one weekend? But I, I have written some really unsuccessful screenplays before this that were just murky. And this was the first project where I felt like, oh, I, I am telling the story of an experience. There was so much clarity around it. And also keeping that tone that I, I've really admired about independent film work. Everything is autobiographical for sure. Even in discussions with people I've made this movie with, hundreds of hours of talking about the characters, everyone says, I'm Marissa. And I'm like, I'm not Marissa. She comes off very bubbly, maybe, or warm or erratic. <laughs> and maybe that is how people perceive me. But I've always felt more like I am definitely Ada, where internally, I always feel like I'm searching for a connection I've never had. The Ada that I wrote, that is me, is how I felt around some friend groups growing up. And that's where the brothers come in. Like the brothers are definitely, they are 25 different people pushing to three different brothers. But then I also see myself in each of them. And I think that's that's important to do when you're writing characters who you don't necessarily want to be. You still have to humanize them. It's important that it's two women in a space. There's the, I say very Midwestern, but to open it up, the subconscious language or cues when you're in a space with a lot of men who greet you by showing you their butts. Like I really needed to show how one woman would respond to it who grew up with it. And she seems okay with it, maybe not internally, and maybe maybe it'll take a few years for her to like start fighting back. And then I wanted to show someone who didn't grow up in it at all, who off the bat is not comfortable with the brother. <sighs> Just like this is language that brothers have that I've I've seen a lot of. It's what's the best word for this? It's competitive, and if you don't fit a mold or you don't play along or you don't laugh at the jokes, then the mood just deflates. 
So it is absolutely important to me that it's two women in a relationship going into the space where they're not a part of the language. But Marissa chooses to play along and Ada just struggles the entire movie to play along. In my younger 20s, I felt like I've always been attracted to or plummeted into hypermasculine areas, especially filmmaking. When I was in college, I was the only female, <laughs> even just like making independent films, I was really the only female on set. That's probably another reason that this story came out. Why am I the feminine energy person in these like sports arenas or filmmaking or music? And why do I feel so excluded? Or why do I want to be in these spaces? Why am I not allowed in these spaces? The bugs were added really late into the screenplay. I felt like Ada, because she is so excluded and it's and her character is so internal, she doesn't say or necessarily show what she's feeling all the time. I felt like there had to be a visual metaphor for how she treated Marissa, her girlfriend. I should say, first of all, I hate bugs. Bugs really bother me, even ladybugs. That was another interesting element. It's like I'm writing these little characters into the story, but I have this negative association with them to begin with. But I felt like that was a good thing for me as a writer. It's like, well, where am I going to find compassion or appreciation for these insects, especially the praying mantis? It still really bothers me when it's eating the cricket near the end of the movie. That's, oh, I hate that image. It really bothers me to see violence without fur. There's something about a furry animal where I'm just like a little, it's easier for me to digest. What can you do with a bug after you catch it? There's not much you can do other than keep it and look at it and keep it from its natural environment. And I felt that was so inherently cruel. I perceive that in a lot of relationships around me, the unhealthy ones, not to be too judgmental, but I just feel like people, sometimes they find someone in their life that they're so attracted to that they just want to hold on to them and keep them. But in doing that, they don't allow that person to be anything else at all. They are that pretty interesting thing that they're, they're containing. And near the end of the film, Ada literally lets the praying mantis go. And I wanted that to show that she realized I can't keep Marissa in this box. And we probably shouldn't be in the same box together at all. She's trying to open Marissa up or the praying mantis up to do what they would do naturally. And if they stay, they stay. And it, I don't want it to be too clear near the end, but Marissa's not going to stay if she's not contained. Queer cinema has been so important for me, especially coming from Wisconsin and most of cinema is straight couples. So seeing movies about coming out, especially as teenagers or young people coming out and dealing with that, it's so important to me to see that on the screen. Where are those movies where things aren't clicking? Or where are those movies where the family doesn't like you, not because you're gay, but because you don't fit in or you're just like, you're not as funny as them. I want a hundred more of those. I also want to see more breakup movies. I want to see how gay people have those conversations. Or in the case of Ring Olivio, they don't necessarily have the conversation, which is my experience a lot in the past is breakups are have always been so wordless and confusing, but emotionally clear. We need more queer characters not necessarily coming out 
or facing parental figures who are against the idea of you dating a similar sexed person. Actually, the, the praying mantis was a wonderful actor. He did a lot of really great things for us. <laughs> Why did you, were you wanting it to do that? Never. Hey, Anne. Hi. See if we can like squeeze messages to each other. Rescue me <laughs> from this place. <laughs> the SOS. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I'll save you. <laughs> Just tear me out for once. Wait, do you even get the game? Because we have to win. We can't lose. So you have to get the game. Pretty sure. I mean, catch them, don't get caught. Yeah, uh, she gets yeah. it. Erica Harvey lives in Atlanta, Georgia. She's in her fourth year of medical school. Erica also hosts a deeply confessional, often hilarious, and always engaging podcast. Oh, Brown Sugar Diaries is all things me. It's my literal diary in voice form, all encompassing of, you know, everything, every part of me, that encouraging, that snarky, that really sweet and tender, but I'm still going to tell you what's on my mind. I'm not yet 30. And so I said to myself that I didn't want to go into 30 carrying so much baggage from things that I hadn't healed from. And it just is helping. I tend to record as things hit me because like I said, it is my diary in voice form. If I if I need to like step out of class or step out of, well, not class, but step out of rotations or something, step out in the hallway and I'll say something, I'll do a voice recording on my phone and say, this is, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. And then I just kind of compile it all together and it just goes. <laughs> it just works. 
some kind of way. And I just, I just do. Like I work best if I'm able to just, you know, talk and say what I feel. So it's honestly been a journey of transparency for me to stop hiding behind, oh, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. Oh, nothing's wrong. It's truly allowing me to open up and let people in because I did say this year that I was going to be intentional about letting people in and not just showing the pretty side of stuff. I fear for my mom. I fear for my brother who, you know, is a a six foot seven, 450 pound guy. He wouldn't hurt a fly. But because he is tall, because he is, you know, large in stature, it's just, it's a concern for me. Like he has students. He's a professor um, of music. (laughs) When I tell you he would not hurt a fly, he would not. And he's a music nerd. So it's, it's a concern. And for my mom, who she just turned 60 yesterday, she has asthma. She has she has a sore knee. It just concerns me that maybe somehow, some way, she'll be perceived as a threat. And even myself, I'm not extremely tall, but I have what people call RBF. <laughs> I'm seen as a threat to some people somehow. And it, it it concerns me. And I don't know how this next six months is going to look. You know, join me on the roller coaster. It's definitely going to be a ride. I'm just letting you know now, you might cry. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not. You're right, I'm not. I'm proud of myself for how transparent I'm being. There are things that even my mom doesn't even know. And she listened to the podcast and she was like, wait a minute. I didn't know anything about this. You had sex when? <laughs> I was like, yeah. At a virtual conference for Citizens Climate Lobby, I invited 500 participants to take part in a thought experiment. Sean Digg, a climate change advocate from New York State, asked us to imagine a world without fossil fuels. I took the written responses from the participants and then called on Facebook friends. They read these responses on a voicemail line. What follows is a montage of these recorded responses. You will also hear a response from Dr. Natasha DeJarnett. Dr. DeJarnett frequently appears on Citizens Climate Radio to talk about climate justice, environmental racism, and public health. Sit back and soak in a new world without fossil fuels. Children running and playing without asthma. Rich Loamy soil that sequesters carbon. Reliable and clean public transportation. Windmills. Open windows. People walking. And solar panels on every roof. Birds. Stars. Fresh air. Bees. Birds. Birds. Bicycles. Quiet. Fresh Fresh air. air. Birds. Bicycles. Stars. Birds. Birds. Fresh air. Flowers. Flowers. Bees are More birds. Stars. 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 Stars.
Cool birds. Fresh air. Flowers. Children running and playing without asthma. Stars. Fresh air. Bees. And for Dr. Natasha Dijonette, what does the future look like, smell like? What does it sound like? It sounds like Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's what I hear. But more tangibly, I hear the sounds of children playing outside, laughing free from environmental-induced asthma, running around with not a care in the world, healthy. What does it smell like? It smells like fresh air. It smells like no toxic industrial fumes in our neighborhood. To me, that smells like possibility. We can't address climate change without addressing inequities. So a hundred years from now, I see a more just world. I see our most vulnerable populations with enhanced quality of life. I see children, older adults, people of color, people who live in low, lower income communities. I see them having better quality of life because they are at the center of the decision-making when it comes to addressing climate change. I see our frontline communities no longer living on the fence line of polluters. I see our coastal communities no longer displaced by sea level rise. I see former coal mine communities thriving with new well-paying industry. I see communities that were former burdened with injustice now achieving equity. Communities that utilize health and all policies framework and emphasize health equity for all. These societies will have policies that ensure climate action protects health and protects equity. All policies protect health and equity and it protects our most vulnerable. And, and I see this underscored by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's wise words. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So I see that being what underscores how we move forward. Let me set the scene for you. I'm in New York City in James Chapel at Union Theological Seminary. It's December 13th, 2014. 
It's just four months after a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, shot and killed an 18-year-old black man named Michael Brown. In preparation for a Black Lives Matter march in the city, black faculty, staff, students, and clergy organized this service and a training session. It began with singing worship songs. The words changed to fit a protest. For one of the readings, Dean Yvette Wilson stepped up to the lectern. From Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. I knew the passage well. In fact, I'd memorized it years ago. It was a passage exhorting believers to put on the whole armor of God. In the white evangelical churches I attended for many years, pastors explained, we fought against the devil, secularism, and our own evil, selfish desires. But in the context of chronic police brutality, hundreds of years of systemic white supremacy and racism, Dean Wilson's reading gave new meaning to this ancient text. Let the mighty strength of the Lord make you strong. Put on all the armor that God gives you so you can defend yourself against the devils, the adversary, the enemy, whatever you want to put in there, traits. We are not fighting against flesh Hello, thank you. We are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers and principalities. <laughs> so put on all the honor that God gives you. listening to excerpts from the Bubble and Squeak podcast on Spirit in Action. I am Peter Santoscano, your guest host. Coming up, an evangelical woman married to a famous minister came out as a strong supporter of LGBTQ rights. Peggy Campolo tells us her story of being an ally since the 1980s. Plus, we hear from a gay museum curator who reveals the need to queer the museum. And we take a trip to a museum of the future. Stay tuned. I'll make this brief so we can get right back to Peterson Toscano and his bubble and squeak potpourri sharings. But I need to remind you that this is Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And on there, there's a lot of info, including links to all things Peterson Toscano, but also links to all of our guests of the past 16 years. And you can track down the approximately 42 community radio stations carrying our programs. And please remember, to support them, start out with that. But then you can also support Northern Spirit Radio on our website or via a fee-free donation on our Facebook page. 
Enough about us, back to more bubble and squeak riches from Peterson Toscano. Craig Middleton is a curator in Australia. He even has a fancy job. He is the assistant manager of exhibitions at the National Museum of Australia. His research interests are in Australian social and political history, and he's especially interested in histories of LGBTIQ plus identified communities. He, along with fellow Australian Dr. Nikki Sullivan, co-authored the book Queering the Museum. Craig Middleton tells us about encounters with naked art and points out where museums can improve. You will also hear him read from the Kink Manifesto. Uh, I'm a museum curator. Heteronormativity has too long had the world in its grips, and our mission is to prize open its fingers. KINK is an acronym, K-I-N-Q, an acronym for the for, for knowledge industries need queering. This manifesto stemmed from kind of the stories that I've been telling about a lack of representation. Heteronormativity, we suggest, is a hereditary disposition, a set of well-trodden paths leading to tacitly agreed objects and outcomes. The more we So I identify as queer, I'm a gay man, but what is a queer object? The amount of nudity in art is, you know, amazing. And as an adult, I appreciate it in a much different way. And it was most definitely an erotic experience as a teenager grappling with my own sexuality at the time, not having shared with friends, family, anyone that I had same-sex attraction to men. But then going into this space and seeing depictions of naked men and naked women and naked mythical creatures a particular outlet that I had never had before to have those thoughts and those feelings. So the more we uncritically follow these paths that are given to us, the more normalised they become, the more right they seem, and the more other possible paths become unimaginable. Kink needs you to make visible and denaturalise. In my early 30s, I still grew up in a suburban Australian town. When I was growing up, I didn't see representations of myself in the cultural products around me, the movies, the TV shows, the books I read had love interests between men and women, not men and men. And maybe I was looking for the wrong books. The only representation of gay men that I found was through TV shows like Queer as Folk. But in Australia, they were aired at 11.30pm at night my experience of those identities was very like hidden into the night and that's a common story for me when I go into museums and art galleries and and just in the world I'm looking for myself so often you you read against the grain you read against what's being presented to you and you find queerness in the world around you and I've definitely done that grab onto particular glances or facial features of limp wrists and and all of these things and then you create an opportunity to see yourself and I, and I definitely have done that growing up and I you have to do that when you enter a space like a museum or a gallery because often those experiences are so hidden or not explicitly talked about even if they're there 
it's not just about but what is a queer representation and inclusion it's about moving beyond the structures of power and privilege thinking about museums in a different way that doesn't just include othered others but opens up museum ideas like display interpretation significantly. we invited 10 lgbtiq identified individuals who lived in the city of adelaide and we asked them to look through our collections to find something that related to experiences might have been theirs might have been other people's experiences of gender and or sexuality one person richard boyle who is a local textile artist he was you know really interested in in fashion and textiles so he looked through our fashion collection he found a wedding dress that he was particularly fascinated by because it was from the 1950s it was purple in color and it wasn't a traditional wedding dress you know 1950s post war people couldn't afford big glamorous dresses so they were cut off at the knee and they were very structured but it was purple in his research he also found something else in our costume collection which was a beard from a, a child's costume and richard wanted to display them together on the same mannequin he wrote this beautiful piece which explained the concept of a lavender marriage a lavender marriage is a marriage of convenience between a man and a woman largely the man was homosexual sometimes the woman was too this marriage was to conceal sexual identity and so the woman in this marriage was referred to as a beard what that display did was open up the possibilities of exploring concepts very specific to queer lives without suggesting that those objects belonged to people who participated in a lavender marriage but it but you can imagine if if someone who did participate in the lavender marriage walked into that exhibition space and saw that then their story would have been what represented is a queer object is a queer object only something that was used in a in a march for lgbt plus rights is it is it something that was created by a queer person or is it something different and i think i'd advocate that it's all of those things and it's more and through putting particular objects together that might not ordinarily be put together and through the you know application of text or video or story you can actually draw out all these other stories from particular objects but what is a queer object
Hello, and welcome to this virtual tour. Very excited to see you. I'm docent here named Yuri. And now we are just waiting for other people to arrive. You know how it is. But uh, before we begin, I'll tell you a little history about the virtual museum tours, which, of course, now... That's pretty much the only way people see museums, but there was a time that uh, people went physically to the museum. And it was about hmm, a little more than uh, 100 years ago when something happened. It was a pandemic, uh, 2019, 2020, I don't remember the year. That's not true. It was 2020. Pandemic. And this pandemic shut things down for the first time. And that is when the virtual tours began. They were not very good to begin with. Okay, everyone, welcome here to the Museum of Climate Change History. I will give you a tour of the museum, pointing out in particular the history of queer climate action figures. Because I am queer myself, this is my interest, this is what I showed you, this is what you signed up for. Now, the museum, we are about to celebrate our 100th anniversary next year. The museum was founded in 2035, thanks to a very generous endowment from ExxonMobil Renewables. Well, it was actually a little bit more of a legal settlement, but here we are at the museum. It's wonderful. Museum is physically located in Svalbard. I am not in Svalbard. I've been digitally inserted in the museum. We will begin our tour, and we begin in the gallery of lost museum art. Well, the art is not lost. The museum is because of climate change, so they put it here. Let me set the scene for you. I'm in Havana, Cuba. Now, I love audio, and whenever I can, I take out my little audio recorder. And when I did, it sparked a conversation. I was in an old car, a car from the 50s, which sounded old, also smelt old inside, and spewed a lot of pollution outside. Peggy Campolo is married to the famous evangelical writer and speaker, Reverend Tony Campolo. Peggy was content to be the quiet minister's wife in the background. Then, in the early 1980s, she experienced a transformation. She felt a burning need to speak out at churches on behalf of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. 
For most of his career, her husband did not support gay marriage, but he supported Peggy speaking out. A couple had picked us up and we were in the back seat of their car. And I'm sure they would have described themselves as evangelical Christians, but they started telling Tony everything that was wrong with the church. First on their list was those people. They were sure that gay people were ruining the country and most especially ruining the church. And I remember being horrified, thinking they were so wrong, but I had trained myself over many years to not make any waves, especially when I was on a speaking engagement with Tony. And Tony said some pretty good things to them, but I honestly can't remember what he said because I could hear my silence so loudly. That night I cried myself to sleep and I told God if I ever had another chance I wouldn't be quiet. Nobody was going to say something that wasn't true about people I loved without knowing that I didn't think that. I decided that I better really learn more about the Bible than I had ever cared about learning before because the Bible was the weapon that they used and the church people used against gay people. Somebody suggested a man named Dr. Ralph Blair in New York because he was very evangelical, kind of fundamental where the Bible was concerned, but he himself was an out gay man. He had been out in the Christian world where it really wasn't safe to be, so he would understand where I was coming from. I took the train up to New York City, and it was many, many blocks to his office. I was petrified, wondering what I would say. I didn't have to say much. He said it all, and he said just what I needed to hear. I was so grateful. I said, if I can ever do anything for you or your group, Evangelicals Concerned, let me know. Now, this was a long time ago, back before computers and email, and thought he might want me to stuff envelopes for him or maybe give money to his group. Several months later, I got a letter from him inviting me to be a keynote speaker at his Eastern Conference. He liked to get straight people that really knew how it was to come and speak. I was just flipped that I had gotten a speaking request because Tony was getting eight or ten a day. So I took it into his office and said, I've got to write and tell him I don't speak. I just wanted you to see I got one. And he looked at it and pushed his chair back from the desk and said, Peggy, sometimes you speak when there's something you think should be said and nobody else is saying it. I knew I had to do it. And then it morphed into being invited here, there, places. I mostly always did the same talk because what I had was my story. I spoke at gay churches. I spoke at welcoming and affirming straight churches. Then somebody asked me at church if Tony and I would come over and speak to some of the executives at the American Baptist denominational headquarters at lunchtime. And I said, why? They said, our denomination's about to get a divorce over this, and you and Tony don't agree on this. We didn't at the time. Tony was for all kinds of justice, but not gay marriage. I asked Tony, and he said, sure, and we went. And we must have done a dialogue on that a couple of hundred times over the years. Going with Tony was my ticket into places that wouldn't have had me by myself. 
well, I'm sort of like a carrier pigeon with a message from the misunderstood to the misinformed. George Ferrandi is an internationally renowned performance artist. She's been exploring the expansive possibilities of human interaction and community. Her work ranges in form and scale. With her piece, It Felt Like I Knew You, it was just a simple and risky gesture. In a crowded New York City subway, she leaned on a stranger seated beside her, as if she were asleep. Sculpture usually plays a role in her work, as does humor. It's often a collaborative experiment in storytelling, with participants becoming performers in the narrative or even creating it. So what does a performance artist do when there are no audiences, no community engagement, no chance to meet strangers? Ferrandi turned to art. She now creates George's Lovely Variety. It's a pulpy and wonderful subscription-based newspaper, and it features legit science, COVID-era existentialism, and incredibly cute animals. And in a time when it is rare to get any sort of feedback from anyone, George regularly receives lovely responses to her lovely variety. She tells us about the newspaper and shares some of these messages. It's hard to make new friends when we can't meet in person casually. And so it creates these kind of little windows for an unexpected and casual interaction. I got your lovely variety this morning and it is indeed lovely. I smiled, laughed, felt a heavy heart and got a craving for some pie. I'm an artist. My background is in sculpture. I work in a range of materials. Probably for the last decade, I have been making work that involves some kind of social engagement, whether at a very tiny and intimate scale where I'm interacting with two people or at a very large and expansive scale where I've worked with an organization and a community or a club to develop a performance for 7,000 people. I found out maybe eight years ago that our North Star isn't permanent. That blew my mind. I wanted to figure out how we're gonna celebrate a celestial transition of that scale. And so my work has taken the form of working with communities to create future cultural traditions that say goodbye to Polaris and hello to Gamma Sufi. I've been saving your wondrous zine, loving as always the astro delights, but especially taken with the tender gasp of a centerfold. The pandemic has really forced me to think about how I can meaningfully engage when I can't have social contact with folks. Every page connects me to some part inside that feels alive. And I laugh too, a treasure comes in the mail in perfect timing. I started George's Lovely Variety as a way to have some kind of conversation, the possibility of a kind of intimate interaction without breaking our necessary social distancing protocols. I love the idea of someone holding this in their hands, in their homes, like having this tactile experience of this pulpy textural paper, reading it while they're drinking their coffee. 
And then each paper allows the possibility for some kind of interaction with me or with the other readers. So there's still this meaningful exchange, room for a sort of intimacy of voice, because it's sort of just me and this person having a conversation, albeit not a verbal one. I'm in love with this magazine. There's not much joy with the pandemic, but your newsletter really lifts my spirits and keeps me going. I don't need anything. I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate this newsletter. There are some regular features. One of those future North Stars is represented and introduced. There are 12 eventual North Stars, so we'll focus on one each month. There's a creature feature where we focus on some fantastic animal. The first issue celebrated a caterpillar that sheds all of its exoskeleton except its head. Each time it kind of forms a new exoskeleton, it keeps its old head and they just stack up on top of its current heads like a hat salesman. And the most recent issue features the remarkable Tremoctopus violaceus, which unfurls this majestic blanket from its rear arms whenever it's threatened. We're also monitoring the monthly development of a lemon tree in my studio in a feature called Are There Lemons Yet? There's a recipe from my mom in each issue. My mom is 88 and has been completely isolated for a year in Baltimore. So she has not had a single hug. And she's an old Italian lady who really traffics in the world of hugs. And she's gives us a recipe for how to combat loneliness or how to remember good times. And there's um, a recurring advice column called Advice from Random Objects. Each month I pick something in my house and whatever letters from readers I get that are answered through the voice of that object. And the most recent issue was a cast iron bird that has been painted white and served as a doorstop for almost a decade. I can't tell you how much I look forward to your newsletter. I just got the second issue and I voraciously skim every page and then go back and read each Each detail. Issue so far has had an opportunity to text the editor and then receive something in response on your phone. Words can't tell you how much I'm enjoying Georgia's lovely variety, but it's also really funny. There's like (laughs) aspirational advertisements for... (laughs) doggy diapers because I have an 18 year old Jack Russell who looks adorable in a diaper and really needs them now and then my mom said I couldn't read it without my other glasses and I can't put them on while I have my curlers on it's hard to make new friends when we can't meet in person casually and so it creates these kind of little windows for an unexpected and casual interaction.
Thank you for joining me here on Spirit in Action. On today's show, you heard Kristen Peterson Kazubowski speak about her first feature film, Ringo Livio. Learn more about the film, visit ringoliviofilm.com. Erica Harvey, host of Brown Sugar Diaries podcast, provides a daily sprinkle of sugar on her Instagram feed. Check it out at Brown Sugar Diaries. You can find Brown Sugar Diaries wherever you get podcasts. In spite of the coronavirus lockdown, performance artist George Ferrandi created gorgeous and personal art that she can mail directly to your home. Visit georgeferrandi.com. That's georgeferrandi.com. Find out more about museum curator Craig Middleton on Twitter. Craig tweets at underscore museum guy. That's at underscore museum guy. You can hear full episodes of Bubble and Squeak wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble and Squeak is part of the Rock Handy Recording Network. Thank you for listening. Feel free to tweet at me directly at P2Sun, the letter P, the number two, S-O-N, at P2Sun. And thanks to you, Mark Helps Meet, for giving me a chance to share Bubble and Squeak here on Spirit in Action. Back to you. Thank you, Peterson, for freeing up some of my time this week so I can concentrate on the Facebook fundraiser to get Northern Spirit Radio through the end of the year financially. As always, you do such a great job. I'm thankful, and I look forward to seeing all of you listeners again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.